It's time to heed the call of the wild and seek the higher calling. Higher Calling is the voice of mountain and forest wildlife and is hosted by award-winning wildlife journalist and conservationist Chester Moore. Be ready for an increase in altitude and a relentless pursuit of the creatures that dwell there. Welcome to the Higher Calling. Among my favorite creatures that dwell the earth are wild turkeys. Ever since I was a little boy, I've been fascinated with wild turkeys. And living in a part of Texas, in eastern Texas, where there were no turkeys when I was a kid, the first time I went out to the Texas Hill Country, about six hours away, I saw a wild turkey. I was like, oh my, they're real. They're not just in a magazine. And, and then later being able to see what the National Wild Turkey Federation and Texas Parks and Wildlife have done with restoring eastern birds in the Piney Woods has been very inspirational. Well, last year I went on a quest to photograph the Grand Slam, which is the eastern, the Osceola, the Merriams, and the uh, Rio Grande. And that was an incredible experience. Um, I got to photograph all four of those. It's part of a five-year plan I have called Turkey Revolution. And this year, the idea is to go out there and photograph the Royal Slam, which is including the Goulds turkey, an incredibly beautiful bird, which there's really not a whole lot known about in mainstream kind of turkey hunting circles. So I had to contact an expert on this. Welcome to the program, John Millican. He is with the Wachuca Goulds chapter um, of the National Wild Turkey Federation and retired Arizona Game and Fish Department manager. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing great. I'll tell you what, I really appreciate you coming on to tell us about these uh, beautiful, somewhat mysterious birds. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, you know, it's really interesting doing my research. Um, you know, ghouls were recognized as a subspecies back in 1856. Well, a ghoul turkey is one of the five subspecies that's found in the United States. As you mentioned, primarily they're found in um, Mexico, but in the early 80s, they were translocated back into, mm-hmm. uh, into Arizona, in the southeastern Arizona. But um, that sort of makes them special in that they're, other than, in the United States, they're only found in southeastern Arizona and in south, a small population in southwestern New Mexico. Um, these, uh, the ghouls turkey are the largest of any of the five subspecies. And when they say largest, they have longer legs so that they're taller. And mm-hmm. everybody that comes out here and sees a ghouls turkey first, even though they've hunted Merriams and other subspecies around the country, they, they're astonished by how big these birds are. They... They are. They sort of differ um, from Merriam's turkeys to some extent on their tail feathers and their tail rump coverts. Um, they're usually on ghouls. They're usually a lot wider um, rather than more of a, a beige or a tan color that sometimes Merriam's can have. Mm-hmm. But it can be. It's, that's a difficult characteristic to tell. I mean, every like everything else. Every bird can have a little bit of different color coloration, and so you can see some of that those tail coverts and, and tips of the tails that are not just distinctly white. Um, on the body plumage, it's reported that, and to some extent that's true. The uh, ghouls have more of a blue green in coloration, mm-hmm. and um, they don't have that real dark black. Um, breast feathers like a Merriam does. But again, there's so much iridescence in wild turkeys that it's 
it depends on how the light shines on them and every color in the rainbow can pop out. So it can be, that can be sort of difficult in and of itself. So really the key is to, in, in, in areas where you have specific subpopulations uh, or the subspecies of these birds, that's where you're going to find that unique um, species of, of ghouls turkeys that are located in those areas. You know, uh, with turkeys having so much of that, I mean, you, you mentioned the, the, the coloration and the difference in lighting. I have photographed uh, Rio Grandes in the Texas Hill Country, nowhere near Merriam's that almost look like a Merriam's in a certain angle. You know, and then you they walk another angle and you get a different shot. They look more like a Rio Grande. It's just kind of neat how that works out. But this Gould is a very interesting uh, creature to me because it lives in an area, some of the areas that sort of um, have always inspired me and I found intriguing, which is these sky islands, these little ecosystems that these birds kind of rise up in the highland desert. Can you talk, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, in southeastern Arizona, we have... Um, what's known as Six Sky Island um, in southeastern Arizona. Mm -hmm. And there are specific mountain ranges that are surrounded by desert habitats. Um, they go down, they can go up to 9,000 feet in elevation, a little higher than that even, and then they'll go down into about 3,000 foot elevation um, down into the bottom. And so, there, like I said, there's six here in, in the in the southeastern Arizona. Mm -hmm. I won't get into all the names because it probably doesn't mean much to, the, to your listeners. Um, but over time, we were able to, um, and it sort of gets into the history, and I don't want to get too far in, advanced into that yet, but um, we have been able to uh, reintroduce those, the ghoul turkey back into all six of those uh, sky islands that at one time had Merriam, but the Merriam sort of winked out for a number of reasons, um, and then we're replaced by the ghoul's turkey. Well, that's just fascinating because I'm trying to set the, the stage for how specific the habitat is here for ghoul's turkeys on the state side. And, um, you know, because that's one of the things you think of uh, an eastern turkey. I mean, that thing has a gigantic range, huge range. Rio Grande's got a pretty good size range, and Merriam's a little more spotty, but a pretty good size range. This guy has a very specific range. And, um, you know, part of what I think is fascinating about turkey habitat, which I know you would probably know more than I would on this, is how much, if you get the habitat part right, how for turkeys, how much it benefits other species that might live in these sky islands and other areas. That's true. And the one thing about these sky islands, too, are they're very diverse. Because of that elevational change from down the low desert all the way up to the high, up into the pines, um, in a lot of these mountain ranges, you have a, these different zones of diverse habitat types um, throughout there. And, and the one thing that's different um, on the ghouls compared to the Merriams is the ghouls have the ability to utilize all those different habitat types and the diversity and vegetational types in there. So they're found at the top of these sky islands, and they're also located down into, the, into some of the, the de low desert areas as well. Um, the key to the, the ghoul's turkey, though, in all these mountain ranges, like you said, is that it doesn't have huge amounts of um, connected habitat types. What these sky islands do have, though, is they have these major riparian areas that run um, from the mountains all the way down to the bottom. 
And these ghouls turkey are utilizing those uh, riparian areas and moving up and down um, through those those major riparian types. They hold those types have water. They have diversity of food, and they also have the one key ingredient for all turkeys is roost trees. Mm-hmm. And so those are how that's sort of how the habitat component in East Thai Islands works for ghouls turkey. Now, looking back at Gould's turkey, they were like a lot of creatures in North America. They were pretty much hammered, and habitat problems came, and we ended up at a point where there were pretty much none stateside. Am I correct? That's right. Historically, it looks like the Gould's turkey has been reported that in southeastern Arizona, um, by 1929, they, they had disappeared. Probably through hunting, um, you know, I'm sure there were drought periods in there. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot of, of, of wood cutting up in these mountains. They were being utilized. The area was the west was be- becoming tamed in those times. And so there was a lot of habitat destruction during there, and there was no real habit or game laws in that point. So they were utilized for food as well. Sure. Um, so, yeah, they, they disappeared here in southeastern Arizona around 1929. At what point did, um, you know, hunter conservationists take – a look at this and say, let's figure out a way to do something about this. Well, they started, you know, it was probably in the, in the late twenties, they started looking at, at habitat conservation. And then in, in the thirties um, and forties, it really became abundant that we, you know, we had to start doing something to protect our habitat. Mm-hmm. Um, it, was, it was getting utilized across the West and um, game and fish departments were developed at that time. And, and then the game law started um, in the late thirties and, and, uh, and not only turkeys were at that point were, were being extirpated from these areas, but there was a lot of other big game species and, and small game species that were getting extirpated from these, from the area. So it was something that not only in, you know, the southwestern or deserts, but nationally and throughout North America, that became an important aspect of, of what we know today as wildlife management and the North American model. Yeah, it's radically different if you just look at numbers of when the National Law Turkey Federation was founded in 1973, the year I was born. Um, you have, uh, there's definitely not a coincidence there for sure. That's uh, that's definitely no, you know, I'm not related to that anyway. I, I came into turkeys a little later in life. But um, uh, around 1.5 million turkeys in America then, and then you have 7 million now. And um, a lot more attention paid to turkeys and that kind of stuff and this North American model. And, and, and there's something we'll get into later about, I think, fascinating about Gould turkey in the North American model. But, um, you know, so if you had them wiped out here, you know, if birds aren't going to naturally migrate back, that means you have to go down to Mexico and get some birds. That's correct. And so how does that work out? I mean, you're working, obviously, I know that there have been wildlife partnerships in Mexico before, but that's got to be a little different than calling, you know, Colorado and saying, hey, we need some extra Merriam's turkeys. I mean, working with a, another nation like that has to have a little bit more difficulty. Yeah, it is. Um, I unfortunately wasn't part of that mm-hmm. deal, but um, to go down to Mexico and get the birds that were brought up here. But it was really, it was a collaboration of, of Agencies and organizations. The NWTF was really a key mm-hmm. in, the, in in discussing and talking with Mexico um, and getting all the, the permits and um, everything was necessary to get these birds over and get them quarantined to bring them over in the, in the United States. Um, of course, the Game and Fish was able to, to go down there and do the captures and, and to bring them back and, and 
and do the quarantine periods and release them into the areas on a management aspect of it. But it was sort of had to be a non-political agency, much like the NWTF, that was able to go and be that mm-hmm. go-between between Mexico and the United States, um, in this case, Arizona, to get to make that happen um, over a, a period of years. Well, it's really interesting because having been in on a few uh, eastern turkey releases here in East Texas, I mean, these birds have to be checked. They have to have fecals. All these different things have to be looked at. But bringing them across an international border, you know, a quarantine level, I'm sure that's a lot of different things you gotta, you're going to have to look at from the, from the legal perspective. And, um, but it's been obviously very successful because you had essentially no birds. And how many does uh, Arizona have now? Well, I mean, if we, we can just sort of estimate how many birds we have, but we probably are in excess of 2,000 birds in southeastern Arizona alone. Um, we figure here in the Huachucas where I'm at, we probably have around 500 birds. Um, so we're probably easily at 2,000 and maybe a little excess of two to 3,000 birds here in southeastern Arizona. And there's probably, what, a couple of hundred in New Mexico? Yeah, I, I don't really know. There, yeah, probably, I wouldn't say over, probably around 200 or, or maybe a little less. Yeah, the last time I had spoke with a Casey Cardinal over there, she had said it was somewhere yeah. somewhere in that range. Um, sure. And so you got these two these two states there, these two areas that are around it. You got, you got birds that are, that are coming back. And um, you mentioned the North American model. You know, one of the things about the North American model of conservation takes in the equation of user pay, user benefit, hunting being a revenue source. But this is kind of unique because the way that the tags, if I'm, if I'm mistaken, it's kind of almost like you almost auction some of these off like you do sheep tags. You know, there aren't enough sheep in North America, wild sheep for hunting licenses to pay for them. So you got to auction a percentage of them off to rich guys who can uh, afford to pay huge sums of money to go hunt them. And at a lesser level, but still a very important level for funding, there are ghouls tags auctioned off in both New Mexico and Arizona for the National Wild Turkey Federation, I believe, other organizations that help put money into the ghouls funds. That's exactly right. Arizona offers three... um special big game tax for every big game species in Arizona. Um, and it's, they're either raffled or auctioned off. Um, either with turkeys, they're either done through the, uh, the state chapter or some other conservation organization. Or also in Arizona, we have a, a uh, commissioner's tag that we offer. And we, we sell all the different chapters in Arizona here, sell a, a deck of cards. And then a lucky hunter is, is drawn from that, that sale of those cards. And then all the nice thing about all that stuff is depending on where the funds come from, if it's for turkey or other big game species, all those funds raised and that go back into the conservation efforts of that species. So it's for turkeys and it's for um, ghouls and merriams. And we do have a small population of um, uh, rios here in Arizona as well. Well, that's a wonderful thing because uh, while, you know, I mentioned earlier that how, you know, if you get things right for turkeys, a lot of creatures benefit. And just recently I had Becky Humphreys, the CEO of the National Wild Turkey Federation, and we were talking about how it benefits like indigo snakes in the southeast and gopher tortoises and red cockaded woodpeckers and animals that are on the endangered species list. Well, there's not exactly a bunch of people willing to go raffle off for a chance to take a photograph of an indigo snake. But hunters will pay for money to go pursue one of these majestic birds, and it's wonderful that that money can then go back directly into that and benefit that species. Oh, that's 
100% correct. I mean, when we do habitat projects, I mean, we may have got our funds through turkeys to do a habitat project. But once we're doing a project, we are benefiting all the species out there. We develop a water. That water is used by all species, not just used by turkeys. Um, big game, non-game, uh, small game, um, everything. So reptiles, everything's going to be utilizing that. So irregardless of where the funds come from, all our conservation efforts are, are benefiting the diversity of the habitat and, and improving all wildlife. Well, that's a wonderful thing. And, of course, the ghoul's turkey being, I think, a very beautiful bird. And I, I can't wait to see him in person to see the size compared. I can see him in pictures, but you can't really tell, like eyeballing them compared to seeing them in person. And part of my quest, I want to go photograph those majestic, beautiful creatures. Have you ever hunted Gould's turkey yourself? I was very fortunate to be able to go on a, a hunt a permit. I had 16 bonus points when I drew that tag. Nice. So it's very difficult. In Arizona, there's only 86 permits um, in all the game units currently in Arizona. So it's very difficult to get a tag. Um, I bet. But it was very rewarding. I was able to, to take a, a magnificent bird and um, I also have been fortunate to be able to go out and, and assist hunters just um, pretty much not on a yearly basis, but quite often um, I get called to, to help out and, and give some advice and that type of thing. I don't guide anybody, but I just go out and, and help them out, and which allows me the opportunity to get out in the field and, and go chase those beautiful birds. So it's, rewarding and, and a lot of fun absolutely like uh, i find myself with my camera a lot more than my shotgun or my bow these days and uh that's because i work in the outdoors business got to make a living and i love bringing the stories back to people so they can promote and and support wildlife conservation so sometimes i might be on a hunt taking photos and it's just as rewarding to be there enjoy someone else's hunt and document that for people to support what's going on with national wild turkey Fish and other organizations yeah, that's true. And then, you know, I also have the ability when I go out, I can sort of talk a little bit about the history of the turkeys, um, give them insight about where these birds came from, what, what we're doing to try to enhance habitat in the future, um, and sort of give them more than just the hunt, but sort of give them a background and give them an understanding of, of what it takes to not only develop a population like the gold turkey in southeastern Arizona, but to sustain that population in the future for future generations. Now, we've talked about how these things were eliminated from that habitat for a long time, and there was arrangements made with Mexico for translocations. Are translocations still happening in Arizona? Uh, no, they're not right now. We, we pretty much have put all the, the turkeys at this point into all the different areas. Um, like I said, we've put them into the six um, Sky Islands, but we've also placed them into four other smaller um, areas um, that Schools, turkeys, after we put them in some of these sky islands, they, they've taken off and they started developing in small habitat niches. They've developed a small population, so we've translocated birds in there to, to try to build that population up. That, those areas don't have really a lot of contiguous habitat in there, but they do have enough habitat to support a small population of ghouls, turkeys, so we've been doing that. At this point, we've stopped the capture program, um, but it's Sometimes we get areas that we have nuisance birds that the Game and Fish Department's going in and, and capturing, and then they're translocating them back into some of these other areas again, just again for um, to assist the genetic diversity and, and that type of thing. 
Yeah, that's a great thing. So if someone like wants to learn how to maybe get a chance to apply for a Gould's tag, how would they do that? You can get a hold of it. Look on the website for Arizona Game and Fish Department, azgfd.org. Mm-hmm. Um, you can check with them or, or Chuck. You can um, get with our um, turkey chapter on our either myself or at our, our website at nwtfaqagolds.org. Or you can also go to the, just Google um, Arizona State Chapter. And the Arizona State chapter has a brand new website that's just getting online right now. So that'll be up and running and, and full bore here probably in the next month or so. Yeah, that's wonderful. Now, we mentioned several times the Merriam's turkey, which is sort of the other turkey you'll see in some of the more mountainous habitat out west. And uh, absolutely beautiful bird. And for people in my side of the world, that's like the one you always want to get on your slam the most is the Merriam's because it seems the most exotic to us, you know. So um, for those of us in the south. But uh, these guys kind of run parallel to some of the spots that you have down there with the uh, Gould's turkeys. Yes, they do. Matter of fact, the Merriam's turkey were released by the Game and Fish Department here in southeastern Arizona in the 50s. Um, But by the 80s, uh, that population pretty much winked out um, throughout the Sky Islands in southeastern Arizona, mm-hmm. um, primarily because of unsuitable climatic and habitat conditions, and particularly the lack of ponderosa pines, which Merriam's are really ponderosa pine dependent. Yes. And over the last three or four decades, we've had some wildfires go through all our Sky Islands and up on the higher elevations where we've had Good used to have good pine um, galleries. They got burned up, and so we don't have that real um, high densities of, of pines anymore in contiguous habitat. So the habitat changed over time, and because of that, there just was a lack of habitat for the Merriams. And they also the Merriams were were not able to to move up in that different habitat type that are found in the, in the Sky Island. Um, so that's why it was felt at that time as those winked out that the rules um, turkey would be since they were probably the species that was indigenous to this area to put them into this area. So a, little, a, little better f- in it, a little better for having sort of the arid um, desert habitat probably. Well, they do. And then when you look up north, on north of our Muggyone Rim where we have Merriam's turkeys, there's tens of thousands of acres of contiguous um, mm-hmm. ponderosa pine mm-hmm. um, in those areas. So there's those high elevations that are up there that are, you know, 7,000 feet and above are primarily for where the Merriam's turkey are inhabited. And what we've seen also, I believe for certain is the Merriam's are, we started looking at over the years when I started looking and studying the ghoul's turkey, we were, I was seeing the ghoul's turkey were, nesting or were breeding and nesting and having young later about a month to two months later than Merriam's turkey were. Hmm. And so over time you look at Merriam, they're really key to the winter, the snow melt, um, that early spring mm-hmm. green up and forward when they're, they're breeding and they're having their young when that, that, that all that new green up came from the snow melt. And then you start getting insects, which is key for those chicks down here. We don't have that. We're not reliant on winter moisture. We're reliant on summer moisture. So the ghoul's turkey are are 
breeding a little bit later. They're nesting and hatching the end of June into July, which is tied to our monsoon moisture, which again, it keys right back into the, the needs of, of green up and insects for their chicks. So they just seem to be better adapted to this desert habitat than Marion's turkey are. And that brings up a, a really good point. I've had a couple of people over the last few years ask me, why is it important to save subspecies? Well, the reason it's important to save subspecies, if you look, just say a map of America, you could take a wild turkey, but an eastern turkey is not going to work in the same habitat as a gold turkey. And we're learning that a gold turkey isn't going to work as much as an amarium. So you have certain subspecies that are simply better for certain areas. So unless you want to like say, we don't need turkeys here, it's good to protect these subspecies. It is, and most of these subspecies, just as you alluded to, are, are habitat-specific yes. to certain areas. Mm-hmm. Um, so it would be very difficult to bring a, an eastern down here into the, into the Sky Islands and expect that turkey to do well. They might do well back east, but they're not going to do well here. Um, the environmental conditions and the habitat types are, are lacking, and, and they're going to do much like what we saw with the Merriam's turkey down in southeastern Arizona. I've actually got a story I'm kind of working on. I was told at one point, I believe it was in the 70s, that there were Osceolas brought and put into southern Mississippi, uh, and it didn't work out. So I don't know. I know back in the day people were, like, breeding turkeys in pens and releasing them. There was just a lot of stuff before they kind of figured out the art of translocation of these birds. Yeah, it's it's like wildlife management as a whole. We've learned a lot, and we continue to learn. It's, it's sort of a science that's constantly moving, and, and we're learning more as we go on over time, and, and it sort of makes it interesting. I mean, you think you know everything, but when you drop a bird off, you think you've got the best habitat in the world or any species for that matter, and they move and they decide for you what the best habitat was, not what – not – exactly what you thought was the best habitat. I got gotcha. you. That's they needed. That's, that's, and that's a great point. Appreciate you sharing that. I've photographed all four, and I've hunted and killed Eastern and Rio Grandes. Um, and I found the Eastern to be, like, radically smarter and harder to hunt than Rio Grandes in my Rio Grande experience. And I've had hard Rio Grande hunts, too, but the, all the Eastern hunts I've been on were, were pretty tough. I mean, those birds are very wary. Did you notice when you hunted, or maybe you've helped guide these hunters, you notice any differences in behavior from a Gould's and, say, a Merriam's or a Rio Grande? I've never hunted Rio Grande. Um, I've only been hunting Merriam's and, and then the Gould's, and I've been dealing with them down here. Mm-hmm. The, the population of Gould's is small, and we have really small number of permits. And Our success rate is usually 90 to 100% on these birds. Wow. So they're not really pressured in these mountain ranges, there you and, go. and that's that's eight game management units for 86 permits. So that's not all in, in one unit. So that's mm-hmm. scattered throughout southeastern Arizona. So as I told some hunters, I said, you know, most of those birds that have been called in by by uh, hunters are not in the gene pool anymore. So they, they don't have a lot of experience over two or three hunting seasons gotcha. like the eastern do with the pressures that they have out there or yeah. Merriam's up north. So these birds in many instances, are not nearly as wild-acting as they are the Merriam's or I'm sure the Eastern and the Reels are, where they're getting a lot of hunting pressure over a long period of time. These birds are in these riparian areas. There's a lot of, of 
um, recreational activity in these mountain ranges on a year-round basis. So they're able to see people all the time. So they're, in many instances, they seem like they, they're almost domesticated in some times until you have a tag in your pocket. And then, as I found out, <laughs> they're not quite as domesticated as you thought you were, especially when you're running around with a bow in your hand. Yeah, big, big difference there, you know. But that's a great point about, like, the hunting pressure. Um, I killed a, the first uh, turkey I killed with my bow was on the King Ranch in South Texas in, like, 96 and that particular 10,000-acre chunk had not been hunted in 30 years. So the birds didn't care. I mean, they were coming to a call pretty, pretty good. And I've hunted them other ranches where they were a lot more wary. But the Easterns have all been in areas where there's, like, tons of hunting pressure. So they just act different. They, and it's just interesting to me. And I think a lot of that, you're probably right, has to do with that hunting pressure. And, of course, if they're strictly managed like that, um, if you're the guy who draws that tag, you would like that. But like you said, I'm sure that uh, once the person shows up with the camera, they act differently than the guy with the bow and arrow, the shotgun. Yeah, they do. And, you know, we don't have the densities at the Eastern. Um, mm-hmm. You're able to get out in, in seabirds mainly because how they're concentrated in these riparian areas. Mm-hmm. But they know where all the hens are in that area, and they know where all the gobblers are in that country. So. They can be sometimes difficult to call in with a call just because, you know, they know everybody, they know Joe and, and Bill and everybody else that's in that canyon. And so when you call, as, as I know you've, you've seen before, sometimes they, they're, they're smart enough to realize that that isn't somebody that I'm accustomed to, to hearing or the sounds that I'm accustomed to hearing. So sometimes they, like all turkeys, they can be difficult to, to call in. And then other times they can... You can throw it, slam a door, and that will come running in. The eastern that I shot last year was part of my turkey quest, and I had to get a, I wanted to get a photo of this bird because it's in one year getting all four, and he's like 200 yards out in this field, locked up for 45 minutes. And my buddy who was calling him in was like, put the dang camera down. I said, no, I got to get the picture, man. This is, you know, and it, bird, it was like, I know there's, it sounds like there's hens over there. Sounds like there's a gobbler messing with them, but... I don't want to come. Then finally, he did another little variant of the call, and the bird ran right in, but it was that wariness. And I think getting back to just the heart of what turkey hunting and people interested in turkeys are all about is that wariness, that, that, that calling in, that magic feeling of when you call that bird and that big gobbler comes strutting around. And that's something, no matter what subspecies you're hunting, that will keep you coming into the field year after year. Oh, yes, that's true. I mean, you know, I... Related a lot to like you call him a bugling bull and he comes running in. You get a, a gobbler that comes in in full strut and drumming and spitting is coming in. I mean, the excitement level to me is, is the same. We were yesterday and over the weekend, we we work with the game and fish department. Um, and we've been doing this for 30 plus years now. Um, we do an annual turkey survey here in the Wachuca Mountains where we, the people that drew, the hunters, they can come down. Um, volunteers come down uh, this year because of the, the issues with the virus. Uh, we weren't able, we did more independent routes um, rather than a big group survey effort like we have in the past through our turkey chapter. But there was some guys in there that had one guy um, got drawn and his kids got drawn and they never have hunted turkeys. He's really into ducks and he's into elk. And I said, well, you're going to add one more thing, one more critter to your <laughs> your avid hunting list after you call in a gobbler in. It comes into full strut. And he said, that's what I'm afraid of. 
No doubt about that. There is no doubt that if, especially if a guy's into ducks and calling and, and elk, he'll be hooked. Yes, indeed. Well, I'll tell you what, I appreciate you taking the time to talk more about this incredible species. I'd love to have you on again at some point, maybe talk a little more in depth. If um, someone wants to learn more about your chapter, where do they go? They can go to our website again, nwtfhuagolds.org. Or you can just go on the website and just check um, Arizona Ghouls Turkeys and our website will pop up there. So you'll be able to locate us, and, and we have a, a website that will keep you updated with all our activities that we do. We're really an active chapter. We do about 12 to 16 events a year, family, conservation, youth events. Uh, so we're very active, and uh, we look forward to visiting and talking and educating anybody that's interested in turkeys or habitat en- enhancement or, or whatever they may be interested in in the outdoor field. All right. We appreciate the time. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much for having me. I greatly appreciate it, and and everybody stay healthy and safe. Hey, folks, before we go, let me tell you about my good friends at the Houston Safari Club Foundation. This is an organization that supports hunting and conservation. They've taken hundreds of kids hunting and fishing, given out over $2 million in scholarships, and they provided over $4 million in grants to protect wildlife and habitat at home and abroad. They host great monthly events and an annual convention where you can meet other hunters and learn about all types of hunting. Don't let the name mislead you. They're not just about safaris, but definitely about all kinds of hunting. Education, conservation, protecting the future of hunting. That's the Houston Safari Club Foundation. Join today. Call 713-623-8844 or go to wehuntwegive.org. To learn more, Higher Calling is brought to you by Texas Fishing Game Magazine, our official sponsor. You can check the online edition out at fishgame.com and also subscribe to their e-newsletter. And if you'd like to me to personally subscribe you to that newsletter, because I actually can do that, you can email me at chester at chestermore.com. Fishgame.com is not only wildlife and fisheries in Texas, but we cover things going on nationwide. And you definitely subscribe to the newsletter. Three updates a week, killer, killer stuff put together by yours truly. Once again, Higher Calling is sponsored by Texas Fishing Game Magazine at fishgame.com. You've been listening to The Higher Calling, hosted by the wildlife journalist Chester Moore. Contact him at chester at chestermore.com. Follow him at thechestermore on Instagram and his blog at highercalling.net.